Well, let me introduce myself to you guys. I, my name's Nathaniel Simmons. Some of you may remember, y'all have invited me here twice before. This is my third time being here with you. And so I feel that you guys must be a forgetful bunch if uh, you're willing to suffer one more time. But uh, I'm, I'm thankful you're here. Some of y'all might know, if you remember Taryn Stevens, uh, Taryn has moved back to Florida, and that's actually, I'm an associate pastor of a church in Florida where Taryn is now coming. And so what a small world, but she uh, asked me to tell you guys hello and that she misses you, and she was envious that I got to come hang out with you. So greetings from Taryn. I kind of feel like Paul. Paul, whenever he writes his letters, he passes on greetings from other churches. That's what I'm doing for you guys, that uh, Taryn and her family wanted me to tell you thanks. If you want to go ahead, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13 today. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 13, we'll start in verse 24. While you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. I'm wondering, are any of you nervous about the future of Christianity? It seems to me that there are less and less people in America who would identify themselves as Christian. And there's more and more people who actually seem hostile to Christianity. And the truth is it's easy, especially the more I watch the news, it's easy to just start to feel nervous about it. There was a, uh, I I told you I'm an associate pastor in Florida a a few months ago, had several people ask me about a survey that recently came out. There's a group called the Pew Research Group, and they do surveys on the state of Christianity in America. And they did a, a massive survey that got a lot of attention. And what they found is that Christianity is actually in a pretty serious decline in the United States. Over the last seven years, in 2007, about 78% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. But in 2014, only 70%. That means there was about an 8% decline of people who considered themselves Christians in just just seven years. Um, There was a second survey that came out that kind of gave us a little bit more information. The second survey said... Details are significant. That, that decline wasn't the same in every denomination, in every group. In fact, the d- churches that tend to believe the Bible as, a, as God's word, uh, they haven't seen the same kind of decline. But nevertheless, there, there's been this sense of fear of what is happening to Christianity in America. What's the world going to be like in seven more years, in ten more years? And there seems to be this sense of fear that's going on a sense of nervousness. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I believe that that feeling, that fear, is very similar to the feeling that the disciples have in the passage we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at Matthew 13 and verses 24 through 53, and Jesus is going to talk to the disciples. He's going to give them six parables, really seven, but six, six parables that kind of address their fears. But to understand their fears, I think it's going to be helpful if I just try to do a super fast overview of what's happened in the book of Matthew so far. In Matthew's gospel, he introduces Jesus as the king. In no other gospel is Jesus being the king such an important theme. Matthew starts right away with Jesus being the son of David, the king. And then immediately he moves into, actually Matthew, I think, is the only gospel that presents the wise men. Right? The wise men, the magi from the east, they come and they travel and they give Jesus a coronation service 
where they recognize here's the king of the Jews and they give him gold and frankincense and myrrh and they're declaring Jesus to be the king. And really in the first nine chapters, over and over, Jesus is saying, I'm the king and my kingdom is at hand. My kingdom is at hand. Be, repent for the kingdom is nigh or is at hand. And it seems like in the first nine chapters, everything seems to be going great. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, verses, chapters 5 through 7, and everybody walks away from his teaching, and they say, I've never seen anyone with this kind of authority. He has the authority, he teaches with the authority of a king, right? In, nine, in 8 and 9, chapters 8 and 9 in Matthew, Jesus does miracles that are absolutely unheard of. A person can't walk, they're lame, and Jesus says, rise up and walk, and they do it. Right? P- people can't speak, and Jesus touches their lips, and they can speak. There are demon-possessed people, and Jesus commands the demons to go out, and the demons have to submit to his authority because the idea is, here's the king, and they have to do what he says. He even speaks to the winds and the waves, and they die down because they're responding to the authority of this king. And the first, chap- the first nine chapters of Matthew, you get the sense that the king is here. He's finally come, the promised king. And he can do anything he wants. And then in chapter 10, and really chapter 11 and 12, the whole story starts changing. Right? The disciples, he's gathered his 12 disciples, and they're following this man that they believe to be the king. But in 10 and 11 and 12, instead of everyone responding positively to Jesus, Jesus over and over is rejected by the people he's come to save. He goes to the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and they don't want anything to do with him. These are Jewish towns. He goes, uh, Herod, the king of the Jews at the time, rejects Jesus. Right? You have the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, they reject Jesus. And it seems like the disciples are growing a little bit afraid. We're following a king who doesn't seem to have a kingdom. Right? What good is it if you claim to be the king and nobody will follow you? What good is it to follow a king without a kingdom? And I think that they're starting to get afraid. And Jesus says, in these, this chapter we're going to look at, he's going to give us six stories, six parables that say, I know things don't look good to you right now, but will you just trust me? He says, will you follow me anyway? He says, I know that my poll numbers look bad. It looks like everybody's rejecting me right now. But will you trust me anyway? In the parables, we're going to see really three major things he asks. He says, first, when you look around and it seems like everybody is against me, will you trust that I'm going to do the right thing? I'm going to bring justice. My kingdom will win out. Will you trust me that my kingdom is going to win out? The second thing he tells us, he says, will you trust me that my kingdom is going to grow? He says, right now it seems small. It seems unable to handle the demands of the world that it's in. But will you trust me that I'm not done working here? In the last parable, the last two parables, he talks about trusting him that all the sacrifices are going to be worth it. He says, I know when you follow me, when you're a, a follower of the king in a kingdom that's hostile toward the king, that comes with some sacrifices. But Jesus asks us, will we trust him that following him is going to be worth it, even though there will be sacrifices involved? I think the big picture, the big thing that Jesus is asking us to wrestle with this morning 
when we look through Matthew 13, 24 through 53, is are we going to trust him? Are you willing to trust Jesus? The disciples had to wrestle with it in their place where they saw Jesus had horrible poll numbers. And I think you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, have to wrestle with this same question. When we turn on the news and we see that we live in a world that's increasingly hostile toward Jesus, Jesus is going to ask us the same question. Are you willing to trust him, even when it seems like nobody else is? Let's start by reading the passage, and then we'll pray and and try to interpret it together. I'm going to just start. It's a long passage, so just bear with me. We'll read it all together in verse 24. He, that's Jesus, presented them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and they left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, the weeds also appeared. The landowner's slaves came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and gather them up, the slaves asked him. No, he said, when you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat that's with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them but store the wheat in my barn. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's taller than the vegetables and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in his branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he would not speak anything to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He dismissed the crowds, and he went into his house, and the disciples approached him. They said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field to us. He replied, the one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's buried in a field. And a man found and he reburied it. Then in his joy, he sells everything he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. And when it was full, they dragged it ashore. They sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but they threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? Yes, his disciples told him. Therefore, he said 
to them, every student of Scripture instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we've just read a lot of parables, and we are asking you to help us understand them. We recognize that in order to understand your words, we need ears to hear, and we're asking you to give us those ears to hear. Specifically, I pray for myself as I speak that you will provide me clarity of thought, the ability to explain things that, are, that is understandable um, and right and true and accurately reflects your word. I pray for everyone in this room as we listen that you will send your Holy Spirit on us to break our hearts, to help us see the sin in our lives that keeps us from following you and trusting you rightly, and to work in us a true and deep trust that can abide and follow you in spite of any sense of opposition that we will receive in this world. We ask again that your Holy Spirit will move in our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Before we actually dive into the parables, I want to just kind of tell you about the order I'm going to approach them in. I think what Jesus has done is he's told us six parables, and they're, they're little couplets. There's, each parable has a matching parable, one that says in a different way, basically the same idea. But there, So there's three, right? There's six total parables. There's two that go together. There's another two that go together and another two. But what Jesus does, is, he, interestingly, is he starts with the first parable, the first c- couplet, and then he gives two more. And then he goes back to explain the first one. And then he gives two more before he gives the last one that matches the first one. So Jesus' order, instead of being couplet one, couplet one, couplet two, couplet two, couplet three, couplet three, he goes one, two, two, one, three, three, one. So it kind of makes it a little bit confusing as we're reading through why they do that. I think the whole point of Jesus doing that is to let us know that all of these parables are talking about the same thing, right? He doesn't want us to start reading these parables and think these are just six completely separate different topics that Jesus is addressing. He's saying, no, this is all an answer to the same problem, and that is that you are afraid of my bad poll numbers, you're afraid when you look around and see that every, no one is following me, you're worried about what's that going to mean for our future and for the future of Christianity. And he says, I'm going to give you six stories that are all going to answer that question. But for our purposes this morning, what we're going to do is look at the couplets one at a time and understand the three main ideas, the three major things that help us respond to those bad poll numbers, to respond to the fear that we have that maybe Jesus' kingdom isn't everything we thought it would be. And so we're going to start with the first one, the first couplet, and that's the couplet that is the seed that turns into the weed and the, or the wheat. And the second, one of the, the second part of that couplet is the fish. He casts out that broad net, and he gets fish of many kinds. And to, before we actually dive into that, let me try to set the context of why these parables make sense. Jesus is a king. And any time that you are following a king, you have certain expectations of what makes a, a person a strong king, a king worth following. I'll, I'm going to admit to you something kind of embarrassing, but I, I'll tell on Justin, too. He watches it, too. I like a show called Merlin. 
and I only watch it when my wife's not around because she makes fun of it because it's super, super, super corny. But what Merlin is is basically the story of a medieval king, right? Arthur is the king. You've heard of the Arthur legends, and his father, Uther, is another king. And Uther is basically teaching Arthur what does it mean to be a king. And the one thing that seems to be the central idea in Uther's mind is if you're a strong king, you're going to wipe out everyone who is opposed to you, right? What characterizes Uther as a strong kingdom is that nobody will stand up against this king. And if there's other countries that stand against him, he'll wipe out these other countries. But the same thing is true for the people in his own kingdom. You cannot be an insurrectionist in the kingdom, and and the king's not going to let that happen, is what I'm saying. If you're an insurrectionist in Uther's kingdom, it'll be off with your head. And I think that's what people look for in a strong king. People are thinking, if Jesus is really the king, how come so many people are rejecting him and mocking him and mistreating him, and he seems impotent to do anything about it? Can we really trust that Jesus is a king worth following if he can't even handle his enemies? And Jesus tells them, I am a king, and I am able to deal with my enemies, but you need to understand something, that my kingdom is going to look more like the wisdom of a farmer or like the wisdom of a fisherman. Let's start with the farmer story. He says, what you would expect from a king is that when he finds out that somebody's planted bad seed, is to say, I'm not letting this bad seed grow. And he would go and immediately start pulling up all the bad seed, all the weeds that grow up. Jesus says, if you do it that way, though, there's a problem. What ends up happening is you destroy not only the bad, but some of the good. He says, if you walk in, if Jesus decided, I'm going to walk in and immediately cut off everybody who's against me, there would be people who would suffer that would actually be his real followers. And he says, instead of doing that, because of my love for the weeds, I'm sorry, for the wheat, I'm going to delay my judgment until all the wheat has grown and is mature and I can decipher it and then I'm going to separate at the very end. He says, in other words, don't confuse my patience for my impotence. Don't think that because I haven't judged yet that I'm not going to judge. I'm still a strong king, but I am also a loving king and I don't want anyone to perish. It's basically the same message that's going on in the parable of the fish. Jesus says, a fisherman could decide, I'm only going to catch the big fish and go out with a spear, and he's just going to spear one fish at a time. He says, but that's not Jesus' strategy, because what Jesus wants is a big bounty. So he casts a very wide net. He says, my net will cover the whole world, and I want everybody to be in. But he says, the truth is, some of the fish that will get in this net He says, aren't good fish. And at the end, I will separate them, the good from the bad. And don't think that I'm weak. At the end of the day, the fish that are bad fish or the weeds that have grown up in the kingdom, grown alongside, they will be judged. They will be thrown into a fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, don't confuse my love for my followers as weakness toward my enemies. Don't confuse that. He says, I am patient with my enemies because I love those who will follow me. Are you familiar with 2 Peter? Why don't you hold your finger in Matthew 13 and flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 
Peter kind of deals with a similar issue. Peter says to his, the people he's writing to, there's a church he's writing to, and he says, one day, guys, you're going to get made fun of. So people are going to tell you, you're following a God who ha- can't even judge evil. They're going to start telling you, you're trying to follow a God who can't do anything about all the evil around him. And this is what he says to him, to them. Now, most of chapter 3 is his response, but I'm just going to read verses 8 and 9. He says, Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is just like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do you see what Peter's saying? I think he's saying the exact same thing Jesus is saying. He says that God is king, and he will judge all those who rebel against him. But he is also loving and patient, and he is giving us an opportunity to repent. He says, when we look around this world that's full of people who have rejected Jesus, we should not see weakness. We should see patience and opportunity here. I think there's a couple implications for us here. Uh, There's one that just jumps off to my mind right away, and that's a question we should all ask ourselves. Are we wheat or are we weeds? Specifically, ask yourself, would Jesus consider me a true follower Or will I be one of the weeds or one of the the bad fish that he's going to throw off in the last day? I was involved in a group called Campus Crusade for Christ in college. And uh, Campus Crusade was awesome for me because it taught me to share the gospel with people. And one of the things we did is we would go into dorm rooms of people that were just in my dorm. I lived in Lee at Virginia Tech. And we would go into Lee Hall, knock on doors, and ask people if we could talk to them about who Jesus was. And a lot of people would let us. And so whenever I would start this conversation, I would ask two questions. Um, I've heard Justin call them the Kennedy questions, but we always refer to them as if die, how high, and if die, why. If die, how high was short for if you were to die tonight, how confident are you that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? If today we leave here from our meal after this and you're on your way home and you're in a car accident and you die, how confident are you on a scale of 1 to 100 that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? The second question said, based on that answer, let's say you were to die and Jesus were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? If die, how confident? confident are you? How high, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And if you were to die, why would Jesus let you into heaven? The sad thing is that the vast majority of people I talked to gave me the same answer. Most people that I talked to said that they were some, they were pretty sure that they would go to heaven. They were somewhere between 50 and 80 percent. If I died tonight, I would probably go to heaven, is what they told me. So I said, well, why? And he said, because I think I've lived a good life. I've done my best. And they were relatively humble. They would say, I I admit I haven't done everything perfectly. That's why I'm not 100% sure. 
but 80% of the time, I'm pretty good, so isn't that enough? Can't I be 80% sure that I'll go to heaven if 80% of the time, I'm pretty good? And I had to give them horrible news. The Bible says that there are none who are good. No, not one. All of us have sinned against God. And the wages of sin is death that none of us deserve to go to heaven. If you die tonight and stand before God and say, God, I'm pretty sure that I've earned this, he will tell you, you have not earned heaven, you do not deserve to be here, and separate you from the good into the wicked, and you will spend eternity where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hard, hard news to tell someone. But there's really good news that I was able to offer right immediately after that is that the Bible is written so that you don't have to be 50%. You don't even have to be. 80% is, that's not good enough. You can walk out of here this morning. Everyone in this room can walk out of here this morning 100% sure where they will spend eternity if they were to die today. You can know with absolute confidence where you will spend eternity, and here's why. Because your salvation is not based on your ability or your works, but on the goodness of Jesus Christ who has died for you and me. If Jesus asked you, why should I let you into heaven? You could say, because Jesus is perfect and he's died in my place. I'm 100% sure of my salvation because I'm 100% sure in my Savior. We're going to keep walking through the passage today, but I think it's important for me to tell you this. Nothing else I'll say this morning is as important as what I'm saying right now. If you came in this morning feeling 50 or 80% sure you would go to heaven, you should not leave here until you're 100%. If you came in this morning thinking, I'm pretty sure that God will accept me, you should make it your ambition to not leave this building until you've talked to me or Justin or somebody in this room that can tell you how you can be 100% sure. It's the most important thing you can ever know. I think there's another implication that I want to also bring out from these first two parables. If God has delayed judgment, then that changes the way we can look at the people who have set themselves as our enemies and God's enemies. Right? If God has delayed judgment because he is, doesn't want anyone to perish, then the people who have set themselves as enemies of us and more as enemies of Christ, God says some of these people are still going to be my followers. Some of these people who seem like your enemy today, I'm delaying because I'm going to draw them into my kingdom. You may work at a place where you're one of the few Christians at your work. And God's saying to you this morning, perhaps my delay is because I plan to bring some of your coworkers into my fold. You may have a family that you go to that you are the only Christian in your family. And if you were to even bring up Christianity at a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas meal, everyone would be angry at you and not want to talk to you. And God says, have you considered that my patience is so that I can draw your family members into my fold? Have you considered that I have waited to judge because I still have work to do in, those, in your family members and in your coworkers and in your loved ones? 
Have you considered that God's delay, his willingness to let us live right next to our enemies, is because he still wants to save some of the people that we know and love? It changes our perspective, doesn't it? Our enemies aren't our enemies, they're our opportunities. Our opportunity to see God keep working. And that really brings us right into our next two parables. The next two parables, there's a couplet that tell us, it looks right now that there are no one following, right? It looks like you are 12 people, the disciples were 12 people in a world of enemies. But the next two parables, he says, but really, you're the seed in which you will spread into all the world. God says, you can trust me. Jesus says, you can trust me because I have plans to reach the entire world. Let's actually read those two parables again. Uh, they're shorter, so I'll just read them again in verses 31, and uh, we'll go through 33. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and he sowed it in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's taller than the vegetables and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky actually rest in its, in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. And what he's saying, I think is fairly clear, that the kingdom is going to start small, but it's going to grow. It's going to start like a seed, something that you could barely see with your eye, and it's going to become a tree that the birds of the air will rest in its branches. Or I, I know basically nothing about cooking. But I know enough that I can follow this parable. He says, bread, imagine 50 pounds of dough, which I think that's more bread than I've ever eaten maybe in my life. That's a lot of dough. He says, you take just the smallest amount of yeast or leaven, you put it in that, and it's going to work through the entire batch until the whole thing is leavened. All the bread will rise because that little bit of yeast or leaven. He's saying, I will do a whole lot through something very small. Jesus is saying, when you look at the world and you see it as impossible to deal with, the opposition is too big, Jesus is saying, will you trust me that I can do a lot with a little bit? I can do a lot with very little. There are um, some, some implications here. that I want us to think through. And the first one I want us to think through is have, have you already seen God be true to his promise here? I imagine that the, fair, the disciples were thinking, well, sure, Jesus, you can say that, but how big is this tree really going to grow? But what if you could take a time machine today? What if somehow we could get a time machine and we could take it right now all the way back and grab those 12 disciples and bring them back in this room. And they would say, they would look at it, just this group here, and think, our numbers have, have doubled. And you say, oh no, disciples, this is one small church where thousands are meeting right now all across America. This tree isn't, hasn't doubled in size. This tree has infinitely, exponentially grown to where there are literally millions of Christians all over the world right now worshiping Jesus. What would that do to the disciples' minds? I think they would be blown. I would think they would say, 
I never thought the tree could grow that big. You don't, uh, it's not just that we're all meeting in churches today. How many hospitals were started by Christians and Christian organizations? I, I live in Jacksonville, right outside of Jacksonville. We have three hospitals. One of them was started by the University of Florida. The other was started by it's Baptist Hospital. The other was started by St. Vincent's. It was started by the Catholic Church. There are three hospitals in Jacksonville, two of which are Christian ministries. And they're the big two. And the disciples, I think, would say, what? Are you kidding me? Oh, that's just in Jacksonville. All over the country, there's Presbyterian Hospital. There's Baptist Hospital. There are hospitals saving lives every day because of the work of Jesus Christ through this small sea that has spread throughout the whole world. Tell them it's not just hospitals. There's crisis pregnancy centers where women who feel like they have no choice but to abort their babies are brought into a crisis pregnancy center and they're given counseling and food, sometimes money, children's clothing supplies, diapers, and we're walking with them hand in hand telling them, we can walk with you to save the life of your baby. And that's happening all over the United States because of the work of this little sea that has spread throughout a big area. Hot schools. Schools in America exist primarily because Christians believe that we have to teach people to read so they can access the Word of God. And so education primarily has become a major part of American life because we believe in the Word of God and the importance of accessing it. American government. American government was founded on, we have religious liberties because we believe that Jesus is right, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. The disciples would look at that and say, that's unbelievable. You mean your government isn't killing us for saying that we're Christians? Because you understand all of the disciples were killed for their faith in Christ, except for John, uh, who was locked onto basically an, isle, an island where he was exiled, and he died of old age in exile. And say, you, your country was founded to protect religious liberties under the belief that Jesus loves everyone? That, ha- that would have to blow their minds, don't you think? Right now, today, I think it is hard for us to look at our world and not think Jesus has kept his promise. He has started with this small seed, and he's done unimaginable things. And the crazy thing, I believe, is this tree is still growing. Right? This tree isn't done growing. That's what's so crazy about this. Let me read to you from an article that I read um, several, I, I guess I read it several days ago. I'm way behind in my notes here, so let me catch up. But this article was talking about what God is doing in China right now. In China, in 1949, there were only one million Christians. By 2010, so that was about five years ago, there were 58 million Christians in China. The, article, the author of this article said that if the current growth rate of Christianity continues in China, that the Christian population of China will overtake the Christian population of the United States and all of South America. And that's in a country that it is illegal to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God says, with very little things, I can still grow this church until it reaches the entire world. He's saying, will you trust me? 
Will you trust me? And haven't I proven myself trustworthy? So what's the implications for you guys? Right here, Rockfish Valley Church. I think the implication is, if God has already proven himself capable, can you trust and will you trust that he'll keep doing that? If we're honest, Rockfish Valley Baptist Church is a relatively small church. Relatively small in the scheme of things. But hasn't Jesus already proven that he does amazing things with small groups and small people? Hasn't he already proven to us that he will absolutely change the world? Not with, not with big trees, but with little seeds. Would you trust him this morning to allow you to be that small seed that would reach your family or your workplace or your community? That even the whole state of Virginia could be affected by your faithful service to Jesus, even when it seems like nobody else is following him. Can you trust him? Will you trust him? Let me keep moving. I want to move to the last couple. It's, it's probably my favorite. The last two, verses 44 and 45, I'll read them again. I think they're really interesting. Jesus has already asked us to trust him, that he'll judge and, and be right, that he's strong. He's already asked us to trust him, that he can do a lot with a little. And in these things, he's going to ask us to trust him. In these two parables, he'll ask us to trust him that all of the suffering and all of the sacrifice that comes from following him will be worth it. Let me read it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has, and he buys the field. The second one, the second parable is, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had, and he bought it. What's the point of these two stories? I think Jesus is saying that my kingdom is worth it. Even if it means selling everything you have, you could do that with joy for the sake of my kingdom. He's saying all of the suffering that comes with following me in a world that is against me, is worth it, a thousand times worth it. Have you ever made a really good trade? My, uh, since the last time I was here, my wife and I have had a baby, and when my parents found out that, we were, that my wife was expecting, they made an awesome trade with us. My wife had, her name's Cannon, she had a 1999 Camry. It was black, it had dents all over it. It was reliable, and she loved it because she had driven it for a long time, so it had some sentimental value but the thing was well over 200,000 miles. It was, just, it was beat up. It, just, it was on its last leg. And my parents offered to trade us a 2007 minivan, Kia Sedona, that had a DVD player that keeps the kids quiet. And they, I mean, it was, it was nice. And they said, we will trade you this awesome minivan for your beat-up Camry because we love you, and really because they loved the baby that was about to come. And I thought about it for like zero seconds. I said, done. It's an easy trade. I'm willing to give up something of very little value for something of great value. It's one of those no-brainers. And that's what Jesus is saying. I think that's his whole point is following me is a no-brainer. Yes, I'm asking you to give up something, but in comparison of being part of my kingdom, 
what you will give up is of little value, and what you will gain is of infinite value. The trade is a no-brainer. You can sell all that you have with joy, and you'll get the kingdom. You'll get the kingdom. What Jesus isn't saying is that we buy the kingdom, right? What he's not saying is that salvation is something that we buy, that if I have enough money or if I sell all my stuff, I can get the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, I think, is that if we're honest, living for a kingdom that's in the middle of a hostile kingdom comes with suffering, right? Jesus came to be at war with the kingdom of the devil. And he's saying that's going to be hard, right? Nobody goes into war and doesn't expect casualties. Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to go to war, and I'm asking you to believe that this war is worth it, a thousand times worth it. There's a guy who, uh, he's a missionary in Africa. Thomas Sayre, you might, probably don't know him. He was a long time ago. But you know of him, David Livingston. Um, an amazing, amazing guy. He was a missionary in Africa. And he came back to speak at Cambridge in England. And he's talking to these future pastors and future missionaries. And he wants to impress on them that it's worth it. And they thought, to leave England, to leave all the modern conveniences of England, and this is in the 1800s at the time, but still, there's a lot of modern conveniences of England compared to living in the jungles of Africa. And he says, it's worth it. Let me read to you exactly what David Livingston said. This is, he said this at Cambridge, December 4th of 1857. He says, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God appointed me to such an office. People often talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Says, Is that a sacrifice if it brings its own reward? It brings a reward of healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, a bright hope of a glorious destiny. Can you call it a sacrifice with those rewards? He says, Away with such a word and in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it's a privilege. The anxiety and sickness and suffering and danger now and then uh, with a foregoing of common conveniences and the charities of this life, they might make us pause. They, uh, they might even make my spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us, I never made a sacrifice. I think David Livingston gets it. I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, what luxury could you and I possibly give up that wouldn't be a million times worth it to be numbered in God's kingdom? What wouldn't you give up? Your health? finances, security, your house, your retirement? Wouldn't these all be happy trades to be counted in God's kingdom? Wouldn't I give up everything? Not only would I give it up with joy, knowing that I am serving the king. David Livingston said, it is absolutely, emphatically no sacrifice. That's what Jesus is asking us to believe. He's asking us to trust him. When you look around this world and you see that there are 
enemies of Jesus and enemies of his followers, which means our enemies, will you trust him first off to believe that God will do what's right in the end? Will you trust God, will you trust Jesus enough to say, I believe that you will always do good and do right? The second one, he says, will you trust me enough to believe that I'm still working in this world, that I can actually bring people to faith, that I can grow my kingdom, that I can bless the entire world if you will follow me in a world where people are against me? Will you trust him for that? Will you trust him? The third parable said, will you trust him even if that means great sacrifices? If it costs you money and time, maybe relationships, would you still trust them and believe it's worth it? There's one last parable, and it's not part of the couplets, but it's the end of the passage, so I think it would be good for us to look at it. Jesus, at the end of asking all these parables in verse 51, he asked his disciples, have you understood these things? And I think they're really bold. because They say, yeah, yeah, we understood them, they told him. And Jesus gives this last parable. He says, Therefore, every student of Scripture instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. And when Jesus finished these parables, he left. I think this might be the hardest of all the parables to understand. But ultimately what Jesus is saying is that a collector has the most valuable collection when he has the whole collection. Right? A museum's display is best if they have the old stuff and the new stuff. If they understand the whole picture, that is more valuable than only understanding a part of the picture. And he says the problem with what is going on when we're afraid is that we're only understanding part of the picture. For the disciples, they knew that the Messiah was coming and he was going to be a king but they hadn't understood that this king would be patient and would suffer and that following him would involve suffering. They understood part of the picture, but because they didn't understand the whole picture, they weren't able to confidently trust Jesus in the face of suffering, in the face of opposition. Jesus says, if you understand the whole picture, if you understand who I am and what I've promised to do, you can withstand anything this world can throw at you. You can withstand anyone who would say, you can't worship in our country. You could withstand anyone who says, you can't practice a Christian business in our country. You you could withstand any amount of opposition if you have the whole picture. And the whole picture says that Jesus is good and will always do good that Jesus' kingdom will spread to all the earth and it will win in the end, and that Jesus promises great reward for every sacrifice that comes in following him. If you know these things, if you have the whole picture, you can trust them. And the question for us is, will we trust him? In just a second, I'm going to pray and and close, and we'll we'll move into a time of response, a, a music musical time of response, but I want to kind of help us think through a little bit of how are you going to respond and how am I going to respond. James warns us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? If we just hear the word and we don't respond, then we have sinned against God. 
So how are you going to respond? I want to bring up just a, a few things. God may have weighed something on your heart, and I want you to follow in that, but a few things I want to remind you of. First is the importance of settling the question of where you will spend eternity. If you haven't decided and you don't know 100% sure of where you will go if you were to die today, let that be your first area of response. The first thing you decide to do is, I won't leave here until I have found someone I can talk to about how I can know for sure. Another way that I would like to ask you to respond is I would like for you to start to consider the people in your life who are opposed to Jesus and perhaps opposed to you because you're his follower. And will you trust Jesus that he can use you in their lives? As we sing a time of response and we, we ask how God will use us, will you ask yourself, how can I be a seed, that will, the leaven that will go into that lump and will reach them? Can I share the gospel with the people that I know are hostile, believing that God has waited to judge because he is patient, wanting them to repent? Will you think about specific people you know that you can be used in their lives to share the gospel. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It really is amazing to look at what you've done in 2,000 years through just a little seed of 12 men who are willing to follow you against all odds. We ask now that you will impress on us and in our hearts the ability to trust you, the ability to follow you without regard to the cost, believing that you are always good, that you are growing and succeeding in your kingdom and in all your endeavors, and that no matter what we do in sacrifice and in following you, it will all be worth it to be known as yours. Shape our hearts and teach us to hear and understand your word. In your name I pray, amen.